Great. Well, thanks very much. And thanks to everybody out there for, for tuning in. Um, <clears throat> I want to start just by, by, since this is the first, the first webinar of the year for SPME and the first time that I've done one in a while, I want to just quickly reiterate um, something that Asaf mentioned. Um, these webinars and the BDS monitor uh, are intended to be um, uh, to as an as analytical products, and they're not complete summaries uh, of everything that's going on in the BDS space, so to speak. But um, they try to discern various uh, trends and make limited kinds of predictions about where things are where things are going, and and to construct a kind of narrative of of where we're at. Um, now, having said that, um, February, for, for some reason, has been an extremely, extremely busy and complicated month uh, in for BDS and academia, in politics, and in economics, all of which are interrelated in, in various ways, great and small. Um, and so it won't really be possible for me to hit on everything. And I, for that reason, I, I, I commend everyone to the BDS monitor, which will be appearing at the very end of this month, which will be a little bit more complete, um, filled with more depressing um, incidents and details and analyses. So I wanna just um, talk about a couple of, a couple of separate things because uh, we want to leave some time for questions at the end of end of all this. And one of the things that has struck me this month in particular has been what you might call the, the normalization of Palestinian rejectionism on campus. Now, we know that the BDS movement is uh, sort of two-faced about the whole, the whole issue of normalization. Normalization is a, is a, a phrase used by um, Palestinian institutions to an anti-normalization is their is their standpoint that any kind of uh, undertaking or or enterprise that um, recognizes Israel in some ways to the point of uh, of people appearing on the sta same stage Israelis Palestinians and so on that this is this is tantamount to recognizing and the uh, an illegitimate Zionist entity, and the extent to which this is being rooted in in the American campus, I think is, is something that bears bears emphasizing. So I was struck this month uh, about um, a couple of protests that used the phrase intifada. Intifada, which goes back. Uh, as we all know, um, to to events um, which were not entirely spontaneous uh, acts of uprising. Uh, intifada basically means sort of shucking off. Um, so there are two intifada protests at the University of Michigan and at Brandeis University and various graffiti touting and promoting intifada found at other universities in the US and in Europe. Um, and the, the implicit, the explicit uh, ideology behind Intifada is, is not a two-state solution. It's a solution that is, uh, that sees a Palestinian entity from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, which is exclusive of any, uh, anything called Israel. Now, these are not large protests from what I can tell, a few people, a few dozen people. But I think they're kind of they're kind of telling that this rhetoric used, I think it has to be said explicitly and and uh, knowingly of which represents again an, an explicit solution to the problem. Um, now, there were a variety of complaints, particularly at, at, at Michigan, uh, and um, some Jewish organizations complained to the, to the administration, 
precisely about this, that there's a, an implicit call for violence in the use of this terminology. And interestingly, the administration came back through some kind of low-level functionary and said that the protest was protected under the aegis of academic freedom. Now, the, the protest could be protected under, under the aegis of free speech, I think, um, whether I like it or not, but academic freedom I don't think applies. And it, it points to another disturbing trend that we've seen developing for the last few years, and that's the sort of blanket use of academic freedom to describe anything anything in, and everything that goes on on campus that that um, I like and that you don't, so to speak. Now, if this wasn't um, bad enough at Binghamton University, which is one of the, it's the one of the two flagship, one of the three flagship branches of the State University of New York, uh, there was a, a protest held to commemorate the martyrs of Janine. That is to say the um, gunmen who were killed in, during uh, an Israeli military operation, operation in Janine about two weeks ago. Now, you can call these guys many different things, but again, to call them martyrs is, that's an explicitly Palestinian um, conception that these are sanctified individuals who, who were sacrificed, um, in this case, not in, in a uh, gun battle that they initiated, but rather in some kind of ritualistic fashion. That, um, and this, this actually is very much explicitly the Palestinian, the Palestinian narrative, the Palestinian authorities narrative, and that of various factions from Hamas to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the religious and the not religious um, uh, Palestinian factions. That these are uh, that any Palestinian who dies, um, whether or not they are gunmen. Is, is a martyr to the cause. And again, this is, this is how rejectionism is normalized and legitimized on campus. And I don't say, I don't say that this protest should have been banned or, or anything like that. Um, again, free speech cuts, cuts both ways. It cuts all different ways. Um, I, I may find it distasteful and illogical, um, but let's call it for what it is. And that is a, a, a religious nationalistic protest um, in favor of terrorism. And, you know, we've, we've talked many times in the past about how these how this worldview, this Palestinian worldview has been, again, normalized on campus, but also through intersectional means has been uh, picked up by other movements, particularly in the United States, of Black Lives Matter movement and, and so on in, in particular. I think it, it reached a kind of uh, apotheosis last week with a protest at Rutgers University, which was against all forms of state violence and the carceral state, that is the, the state imprisoning people, doing what states are supposed to do, which is to police and incarcerate wrongdoers. Um, but the, the, the protest was held jointly by the Students for Justice in Palestine chapter and by Rutgers all the the Rutgers all Marxist Leninist Union. Now I have to confess that I kind of burst out loud laughing when I read this because I didn't think that that there was something as um, archaic and anachronistic and stupid uh, as an all Marxist Leninist Union that existed on campuses anywhere anymore. But um, Rutgers proved me. Prove me wrong in 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 this case, and I think it it's just an, a kind of convenient illustration that uh, 
all of these kinds of movements find each other and it leads to the question it always leads to the question of who the useful idiot is in this equation both sides believe that they are uh, in the driver's seat of the revolution i wonder who really is in the driver's seat of the revolution regardless and and this is a kind of to my mind at least a kind of overshot overshoot or self parodying example except that on campuses there are no parodies anymore everything is exists in a um equally not equally non-judgmental uh zone except of course for zionism the ultimate the ultimate evil so um you know these are these are examples that that went on outside of of the classroom that were accepted or indulged by the the universities and um again free speech what what can you do on the other hand the institutions themselves through various organs of of the institutions departments programs and so on also have continued to root the Palestinian rejectionist narrative uh, within their official offerings. And we had some very good examples of that in February. We had two lectures by Muhammad al-Kurd, BDS activist, professional grade Israel hater, um, accomplished uh, anti-Semite, talking at Princeton University, giving the Edward Said lecture sort of appropriate, you might say, and at the University of, of Michigan. Uh, El-Kurd is the, he's the Palestine correspondent for The Nation magazine and, and some other things. And he said all sorts of predictably negative things about Israel, about Jews, and, and so on. So again, with the, at the instigation of the institution, uh, this narrative is, is promoted rejectionism uh, at Bard College, which uh, located up the Hudson River from from me in in uh, in New York, is a course being taught uh, on Israeli apartheid, which came in for quite a bit of criticism because it's not uh, because it says what it's about in the in the title, and I. I have misplaced the exact title, but it had Israel and apartheid in the title. And so, you know, there you are, it's the institution uh, not only accepting, but encouraging the a single tendentious, to say the least, viewpoint um, designed to vilify, vilify a single nation state on, on earth. Uh, we had other other good examples back in January, which have fallout has continued into February, namely the appointment of um, Kenneth Roth, the former executive director of so-called Human Rights Watch, the, one of the two largest entities in the human rights industry, um, to uh, an a fellowship, that's what it was, at the Kennedy School of Government. Now, um, you know, he, I don't want to repeat all of the details. Some of this was laid out in last month's, excuse me, um, BDS monitor. Went back and forth, back and forth. He, he was proposed, he was rejected, there was an outcry, the, the dean gave in and and there he is um tweeting incessantly uh uniquely about israel about the nefarious Im implying that there were nefarious israeli and jewish donors who had tried to thwart his appointment to the kennedy school and and so on so the institution was in fact um forced the institution forced itself it forced its dean to uh, give a fellowship to this to this guy, who was again a professional, professional Israel hater, um, on the basis of his having run this 
organization, uh, which was once one of the leading organizations in, in the human rights space, and which is now rather tendentiously focused on, on Israel, um, among other things. And, you know, he had already gotten a fellowship at, at the University of Pennsylvania. So he wasn't lacking for, for fellowships. And this is important because the Kennedy School of Government is part of the revolving door. It's an important part of the revolving door that connects the human rights industry with the media, with the government, um, and with academia. Individuals like Roth and many, many others rotate continuously through these this array of fellowships at human rights institutes and the school of government and so on. These are holding tanks for, for people coming out of government, getting ready to go back into government, going out of academia, going into the human rights field and so on and so on and so on. And the institutions like Harvard um, effectively lend their imprimatur to the viewpoints of the people that they appoint to these positions. Now we can contrast the the indulgence with which someone like Roth is is treated to uh, to the the fellowship that was given to an Israeli, and I'm I apologize I'm blanking out on on who it was a retired general as they so often are, who was teaching a class on something or another last fall and who was met with um, loud protests that no Israelis on campus and no IDF on campus and all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, animosity and uh, he had to run the gauntlet to get to to his classroom and and so on which is um, very typical becoming more typical we've seen it uh, we we're seeing it right now at the University of Chicago where the SJP chapter is leading yet another protest against an Israel, a retired Israeli military officer teaching a class on something. Um, and, you know, the, the usual sort of no IDF on campus. And uh, as part of last year, the, the campaign was called um, Don't Take Shitty Zionist Courses. Um, it, has, it has a different title this year. So, so much for tolerance and indulgence and so much for the transparent effort to create an intellectual monoculture on campus that is fundamentally rooted in the Palestinian rejectionist worldview. And this is all, this is all very well and good. Um, and it reflects the, the state of the, of the American campus to a large extent, and as I as I always say, on these on these broadcasts, um, whereas ten certainly twenty years ago it would be possible for you, a Jewish kid, an Israeli kid, or just a kid um, of of any background, to go to campus and not encounter anything having to do with with BDS, anything having to do with anti-Semitism, or or Israel. Now, it is not possible to to un, to to be free of this now it may not be serious you may not be assaulted or harassed but there's a very high probability that you're going to encounter it somehow somewhere and so to to sum up this this threat, well actually I'll uh, I'll mention one other thing uh, um, about how these narratives are become rooted and I haven't done I haven't done all the investigations yet. Um, the Ameri the Association for Jewish Studies has a special justice issue that's that came out in the last few weeks, um, which talks about Gaza, and the uh, the cover of this issue, which which I have seen, is an outstretched arm with some kind of text um, mentioning Gaza. As if this is a, a tattoo on the arm of a of a death camp inmate, 
Um, now, to say that this transcends good taste is very much an understatement, but it also reflects the extent to which the Palestinian narrative, Palestinian rejectionism, uh, has become rooted within Jewish studies and, and Israel studies in the name of justice, in the name of even-handedness, in the name of fairness, and so on and so on. Again, I don't know all the details yet. I, I haven't had time to subject myself to this particular issue of, of this journal. I have read a number of protest letters um, that were circulated thereafter. And what's the, but what's the result? As I said, you can't not encounter these things. It's perfectly possible to encounter them and to ignore them uh, or to mock them, which I think is one of the important ways to, to deal with these um, protests. But um, direct, res direct results are, are increasingly being seen. There's a new report that came out yesterday, I think, two days ago from uh, the AJC talking about rise of anti-Semitism uh, nationally. There have been a couple of reports in the last, uh, since the, the new year, about campus incidents, which are rising. And so in, the, in February, we have vandalism F, uh, attempts, not attempts, successful vandalism, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, at Purdue, at and at Berkeley, probably some others that I'm not aware of, as well as um, far more serious uh, incidents, namely the attempted firebombing of a synagogue in northern New Jersey and the invasion of a synagogue um, by an individual in San Francisco who fired off a number of um, rounds, blanks, thank God, uh, in, a, in a group of, uh, in a group of older Jews who had assembled there for a social purpose. So it's very real. The impacts are are, are very real. <clears throat> and it's not getting it's not getting any better. So um, I'm just trying to be mindful of the time. There's lots of, again, there's lots and lots of other things that we could talk about. The removal of Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, long overdue, payback for the Democratic removal of a number of uh, representatives, but which was represented as Islamophobic uh, and, and discrimination against a person of color. can talk about the American Bar Association's adoption of an anti-Semitism kind of plank, uh, which explicitly removed any mention of the IRA anti-Semitism definition. Um, but I want to um, end by uh, grabbing the the bull by the horns and uh, and talk uh, for very few minutes about the situation in Israel with the new government. Now, SPME members and listeners are on all sides of the political political divide regarding the the Netanyahu government and the and the opposition and. Um, I have all sorts of my own ideas about what should should be done, shouldn't be done. I basically I disapprove of of everyone speaking only personally and how they go about it. But to stay very specifically on the on the question of of BDS, the the rhetoric that Israelis use on all sides of the equation. Um, the catastrophism, the the warnings about the the end of democracy. Um, one of uh, a a coalition member, Simcha Rothman, accusing the opposition of of being leaders of BDS. Conversely, Ehud Barak, <laughs> um, holding up a picture showing leaders of the government as Nazis. Um, this, these kinds of inflammatory statements and behaviors are incredibly, incredibly unhelpful. It's very characteristic for Israeli politics, although this is Israeli politics, to um, the 10th power, it's, it seems to me. And there are all sorts of aspects here which are and aren't being discussed in the English language press. And I, 
and at this point, let me put in an important plug for our next SPME webinar coming up next week, next Wednesday, where we're having Javier Redegur, an important um, commentator, writes for the, the Times of Israel, talking about specifically the situation that's going on. I, I really encourage everybody to get on board with, with that. But my point is, it doesn't help. All of this kind of catastrophism and language doesn't help. And specifically in the economic area, uh, there have been several Israeli firms, high-tech firms, which have threatened to move money out of Israel should proposed judicial reforms be adopted. Well, and it's not a question of moving funds out of uh, the West Bank or the occupied territories or something like that. It's out of the country as a whole because it will become less democratic. We see interventions by American politicians, Gerald Nadler, um, Dick Durbin, of all people, commenting today that about um, you know, threats to Israeli democracy and so on, Secretary of State Blinken and, and so on. These kinds of things do not help. And you know, uh, personally, and I can only speak personally here, I think you know, Israeli President Herzog has proposed a, a, a mechanism for compromise and I hope everybody gets on board with some kind of process like that to start talking things, talking things out. But um, it it doesn't help. Uh, it doesn't help people who are concerned about Israel when Israelis behave in this in these kinds of hysterical and, and frankly often juvenile fashions. Um, I, I I encourage legitimate and peaceful protests on all sides and the peaceful airing of, of uh, positions and grievances and alternatives on all sides. But boycotting one's own country preemptively strikes me as, as unhelpful because these things are also being picked up by the BDS movement and opponents of peace and uh, in general, and makes it very much more difficult to, to, discuss, um, to discuss this when Israelis are becoming at the forefront or coming to the forefront of these movements, however, however indirectly or inadvertently or unthinkingly. And, um, uh, and maybe that's a good place. Is that a good place to stop? Maybe that's a good place to stop and, and take some, and take some questions. So. Well, good. Uh, thank you as always, Alex, uh, for the, uh, for the deep dive, obviously uh, there's uh, depressing things going on all around, but obviously this is the, the space we're in and there's much to be discussed. Um, so uh, the floor is now open. Anybody who has questions, please feel free to type in your questions in the chat and we will take it from there. Um, let, me, uh, let me start us off by our first question, Alex, before we go on to the audience. Um, so uh, obviously not, not to go, obviously we don't, we, you know, as Alex mentioned and I echo as always, you know, we don't take a political position on either side of the Atlantic. Uh, we are giving trends and analyses as to how this affects in general, uh, the BDS space at large. Uh, so that being said, uh, we have seen, uh, apropos the recent events uh, in Israel, uh, a, a recent um, boycotting of the Israeli ambassador to Spain uh, who was, as a result of all of this, uh, was removed from the University of Madrid. Uh, are we seeing, and we've also seen uh, in tandem uh, comments coming out of the administration uh, as it relates to current Israeli domestic politics. Uh, should we be concerned looking at the uh, Israel's diplomatic stance in the world on some of these matters uh, of growing concern now that um, uh, that we should be looking to as far as trying to uh, tackle some of these matters as far as the bipartisanship, things of, of, of finding kind of neutral ground. Uh, I know none of these things are obviously, uh, we, have, are, are, we have good answers, but I mean, I think, you know, are, 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 is the diplomatic 
are, are, are the are the concern as far as diplomatic policy uh, call you know being shaking up as a result of all this is that something we should be you know uh, concerned about and obviously what is something we can do about that well well <laughs> let's answer the second part first what can we is there something we can do about it I'm I'm not so sure I'm a little skeptical um, in terms of the of the fallout, the the instability of the of the Israeli government and the Israeli political system is, uh, on the one hand, uh, legendary, to coin a phrase, and long-standing. On the other hand, as as I said, as, as you said, it's it's kind of reached a new reached a new height. Um, but there, there are different levels, and here I think we have to distinguish the diplomatic level, where you know European states and uh, who are at the same time conducting um, lawfare against Israel through various mechanisms that they fund, specifically NGOs, commenting about proposed legal reforms. Um, I think that that's well, to say it's hypocritical is is an understatement, and the U.S. is doing the U.S. is doing the same thing. All of these countries, all country, all big countries meddle in the affairs of small countries using various methods and money and cutouts to affect their uh, to affect their their ends, whether or not they understand what's going on or not, whether they, whether they have a, a goal, specific goal or not. But there's another level, and that is the economic level. And here, I think that there are very serious concerns about uh, we have two or three uh, high-tech firms that have said they're moving their money out of Israel and in protest, not because they fear somehow the, the outcome will be you know, prejudicial to their economic, uh, their their economic stability, but rather because they're they're protesting. And, you know, the first thing I thought when I saw some of this was like when people threatened they're going to move to Canada when Trump was elected, and, and nobody really did. Okay, so there's a, a sort of petulant level, but much more seriously than that, you have an increasing number of letters signed by dozens, hundreds of econo economists, entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, uh, Israelis, saying these, um, these proposed reforms, judicial reforms and legislative reforms, uh, threaten the economic environment, uh, that they, they will precipitate a brain drain from Israel, which is a very real concern. They will threaten the uh, the venture capitalist capital environment, which is a very real, very real issue. So Israel relies on um, on outside investment for to support the the high tech economy, the the startup nation. Startup nation doesn't rely on local money to start up. It relies on investments from from global um, global investors and global institutions. Now, uh, how much of these fears are are real in the sense of uh, are these political? Well, they're obviously political statements. Uh, how much do they reflect actual uh, fears about trends that are emerging? It's it's a, that's a little bit harder to say. The global the, the global investment uh, environment is getting worse generally. That that we know. Um, there are layoffs in in the high tech sector around the world. That we know. Israel is a, as a small e smaller economy and as a smaller player will will necessarily be more vulnerable to these um, macroeconomic trends. Some of which are cyclical. Some of which are you know, otherwise, uh, some of which are conditional, but it's a real, it's a real fear. 
I mean, there are what, how many Israelis are live in California? Half a million um, already. So any significant amount of brain drain um, or capital flight would be, would be bad. And yes, people are trying to influence the political environment this way. Uh, legitimately or, or, or I don't want let, let's, let me scratch the word legitimate. Um, fine. I'll, I'll think of another word. They're trying to, they're, they're trying to make a, a statement. And this is, uh, this is, these are very real concerns. Now in, in diplomatic terms, do the Arab states who are part of the Abraham Accords care? I don't think so as much. They don't, I don't think they would really care about the the particulars of the Israeli judicial system. What they do care about is the particulars of the Israeli econ economy. If Israeli is if Israel's economy is compromised in a significant way, then that would be very bad um, internationally and and locally. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there that there there shouldn't be some kind of reforms and. Um, Israel has no constitution. Uh, it has this crazy quilt of, of laws. It has this, no, this concept of judicial autonomy and supremacy, all of which in, uh, should, be, should be up for discussion by, uh, by people of goodwill, but there's no goodwill. Uh, and there's never been any goodwill in Israeli politics. And, um, so I don't know when and how and who's going to do all this. I, I think the best we can hope for is sort of a limited series of negotiations to, you know, uh, in within the current crisis to diffuse some of the incredible hostility and, and potential violence that's that's out there. Um, but you don't want to jeopardize the economy. That's that would be bad because everything depends on. Everything depends on that ultimately. So leave it there. All right, great, thank you. Um, th there are a few questions, Alex, about, you know, apropos your last comments about the judicial reform. Uh, I, I will highlight again, you know, echoing what Alex mentioned early on uh, in the program. Uh, we are hosting Khaviv Gore-Redding uh, next week, who has been the reporter who has been covering all these uh, issues uh, for the Israeli press will be doing a deep dive into all of this next week. Uh, what I do see here as a common uh, thread in some of the questions that have been asked Alex so far, I think do relate to um, uh, the attempt uh, by Americans, the American Jewish community uh, to parachute the, the American system and the American judicial system on the Israeli system. And obviously th there is also a movement in Israel to do all of that. Uh, I don't know if you want to like, uh, I mean, I know that's a, it's a, you know, it's a hot topic if we want to say something about that, but maybe, maybe it, it is worth explaining the, the, the structure of the Israel uh, judicial system or lack thereof uh, and why it doesn't necessarily fit into the American paradigm. Uh, given some of the questions that have been asked here. And obviously we'll do a deep dive into all of this uh, next week. Okay, well, uh, you know, again, this is, it's hard to do on one, on one foot. Uh, it, it all goes back to the lack of a constitution. There's a, <clears throat> there's a declaration of independence, which has implicit sort of rights and rights and responsibilities. And then there were a series of what are called basic laws that were passed uh, in, in subsequent decades. But there's no constitution that, that lays out all of the responsibilities of the executive, legislative, and judiciary branches as we understand them from, a, from an American perspective or a, an Anglo-American Anglo perspective. The judiciary is basically is basically an independent branch, which and one of the the key sticking points or points of protest is that um, <clears throat> as it as it currently exists as it as it evolved over over decades, 
because there were no because there were no constraints and because nobody else was taking responsibility, it uh, evolved into a kind of autonomous uh, entity, which where judges appoint themselves, they, they appoint each other. There's no, there's limited legislative or executive input. I don't want to say no. Um, and anybody, there, there's no issue of standing. So anybody can bring a, a case to the high court on any on any issue and maybe it'll be maybe it'll be adjudicated and <coughs> excuse me some of the uh some of the proposals the the proposal that's that's been put forward by the 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 coalition the current coalition would give uh would see judges appointed by the executive and and approved by the um and some of them approved by the legislature now the wisdom of of all this and and again you know everybody should be able to to create their own political system um and you know the the americans tend to think that they have the best they have the best political system and the best division of power, powers, um, which completely, completely befuddles Europeans when they look at it, because they'll look at it and say, "What? You have no investigating judges who can just bring, who who can investigate crime and bring cases on their own? That's that's insane." And and so on. Um, you have a bicameral legislature. That's that's insane. How do any, how does anything get done? Um, so a lot of it is uh, is is cultural and again a lot of it is just our historical of uh, is historical that it 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 evolved in this way like like topsy and <clears throat> um whether it works or not it works it works the way that it works um my personal perspective and i this is very much my only my personal view is that it barely works, and it only it, it you know it worked and it worked better when there were better people involved um, <clears throat> as legislature uh, legislators, and um, so I don't know I don't know what to do. I think the I think the answer lies in in a in a more uh, pervasive kind of constitutional series of constitutional reforms um, which again requires people of of good faith to be calm and you know dispassionately discuss issues and try and come up with systems that represent the democracy and or the, the democratic will um, that preserve individual freedoms and and so on and so on and uh, one of the concerns in the current in the current situation and again here I, I will stipulate that i only speak for myself personally i i do not speak in any official capacity at all there are proposals that have been made by members of the government by which are uh to uh to strip um gay and lesbian of of certain rights and um <clears throat> which which they the proposers believe are is in line with religious jewish religious mandates now instantly um netanyahu himself came out and said very publicly that these are these are non-starters same thing with modifying certain uh, laws regarding uh, public enterprises operating on the sabbath <clears throat> and um but it is a it is a fear, and perhaps a legitimate fear, that um, the legislature could in uh, could pass such laws, and the, that the judiciary could, uh, if it were comprised of political appointees, could um, support these kinds of um, denials of rights. <clears throat> So again, 
but we have a situation where of of, of stasis where nobody's really happy of where one side feels disenfranchised and the other side feels like it, it, it that a certain kind of power is is about to be and liberties are about to be stripped and um actually both sides both sides feel the, the same way that that they are under threat and i don't i don't have i don't have a solution except to sit down and talk about it quietly and and calmly and hopefully um the 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 compromise process that um president herzog has proposed will will um take hold there are you know little inklings that maybe um the the various sides are softening but it's hard to it's hard to say right that, thank you is that reasonable reasonable enough exactly well you know it's uh there, there's there, there's a lot there and you did a good job as always thank you um let me uh let me try to unmute here uh miriam Schenker and see if she uh let her ask her question uh miriam can you hear us Let's see if she's unmuted uh, miriam here uh, Miriam, are you able to? As usual, we apologize for the the technical technicalities here. Just we're Bear we're not trying to silence anybody. It's just that sometimes these little buttons don't always work so well. well. Uh, let me try Murray. See if Murray can hear us. Murray, can you hear us? Murray Rubin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Murray. Yeah. Yeah, feel free. the floor is yours. Ask I, your question. Yes. My question is, why is Netanyahu so interested in staying on for another term when he has served this time more than any other premier of Israel. And greed seems to be not missing among Israelis and Jewish people. Okay. Well, it's it's uh, it's hard to say, and uh, again, it gets us a little bit far away from the you know BDS focus here. But um, you know the 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 usual answer, and again, come back next week and ask Chaviv. And the usual answer is that uh, Netanyahu uh, was intent is intent on um, regaining the the uh, prime ministership. Uh, largely in order to enact judicial reforms which will get him off the hook with respect to ongoing corruption uh, allegations and unfolding trials. <clears throat> I think personally, again, personally, because SPME doesn't uh, take a stand on this and nor do we have any, any way to know uh, if we did, uh, I think personally he has two he has one overarching policy goal, and that's normalization with Saudi Arabia, which would be the crowning achievement of his premiership or prime ministership, and that that uh, motivates him as as much as anything else. I don't think he's interested at all uh, in in all of these social legislative, the social reforms. Certainly not the the legislative, less so the judicial, maybe because it's been a thorn in his side. But um, but he has a coalition which is, and his party as well, has been supremely interested in these judicial things. So I don't know. Uh, and, you know, all politicians, uh, rare is the politician who uh, knows when enough is enough. And 
you know, the classic example is, is Winston Churchill coming back <clears throat> in the 1950s when he was 150 years old uh, for his last, uh, his last round as uh, prime minister when he was not um, terribly fit or, or terribly interested in, in the, in the issues. Uh, so knowing to say when is, is important and uh, the willingness to, let's say, let, let's stay in the, in the, um, in the American idiom and say like, uh, like, Dwight Eisenhower retiring to to his farm in Gettysburg after his second term, and um, that would that's always that's a good model. Um, Cincinnatius in, cl in classical terminology, but again, come back next week. Uh, pose this question directly to to an expert who is deeply deeply um, rooted in all of the the. Uh, ins and outs of Israeli politics. Right. It's also worth noting, of course, Alex, that in Israel there is no term limits, which of course have also allowed this uh, this entire infrastructure to uh, to grow and breed and metastasize all around. I mean, so again, as far as structural issues that the Israelis have, uh, you know, again, the lack of term limits you know, also affords some of this as well. Right. Well, uh, we have the... <laughs> You know, in the in the American uh, system, we uh, we have term limits for presidents. We don't have term limits for anybody else. So we have you know senators who are nine hundred eighty three years old, um, and uh, who have been in Congress since you know the Mexican American War, and this kind of this kind of nonsense. And um, that's no good either. So uh, you know, no when enough is enough. Um, yeah. man's not a man's got to know his limitations as as inspector harry callahan once said so well, you know uh, words of wisdom indeed so like you know no 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 when to quit that's always always a positive thing um in the you know and the time that we have left i mean just you know one more one more aspect that we did not touch on uh today but maybe worth saying a few words uh as well um, is the recent, obviously we, we know that one of the more vocal outspoken individuals in the pro BDS narrative is no other than former lead singer of Pink Floyd, Roger Waters. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy uh, of late, uh, you know, about his uh, appearances in Europe, especially in, 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 in Germany uh, and, you know, outpouring of by by I'm of discussion by former uh, bandmates of his who are speaking out right. against Waters. Um, it, maybe say uh, talk a little bit about the cultural element that we're seeing now uh, within uh, within the BDS narrative and within the conversation as it relates to um, your earlier point about normalization and lack thereof when it comes to uh, bands and artists performing in Israel. Right. Well, you know, Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, uh, which was formed back in around 1966, um, deliberately avant-garde, uh, went out of business in the in the early 1980s, and all the different members of the band, most notably Roger Waters, have, have um, kind of milked this experience for everything that it's worth. And Roger Waters in particular adopted a, a very radical, a radical stance. And as one might say, befitting the author of The Wall, um, <clears throat> and became since that time, over the last 30 years, very much a, an anti-imperialist kind of kind of icon. Uh, he's a very he's a very complicated individual. He's been married like five times recently as well. <clears throat> His father was was killed in World War II, and um, so he grew up kind of messed up. And from what it seems, 
he really, really doesn't like Israel, and he's not so fond of Jews either. But it was always cast in this in this kind of anti-imperial, anti, and certainly anti-American sort of uh, sort of framework. And that framework has gradually more and more um, kind of become frail or, or transparent. And the thing that did it in, you know, which brought him to the, the state that he's in now, is that uh, he's he's a, he's against. Um, he was basically was against the idea of Ukraine defending itself. Not exactly pro pro Putin, but like a lot of people who come from strange parts of the of the global left, um, he found himself. He finds himself sort of more attuned to the Putin narrative of being besieged by by the West, <clears throat> with Ukraine as the dagger pointed at the at the heart of of Russia um then he is with the idea that uh, you know that 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 Putin Putin's Russia invaded um Ukraine and was defeated with you know 50 billion dollars of american support so recently i guess it was last week um david gilmore the guitarist uh his wife who's a novelist and lyricist um, basically tweeted that you know Roger Waters you're 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 not anti-imperialist you're basically a an anti-western anti-semite um jerk I think there are harsher words than that and then Gilmore himself who's you know known Roger Waters for 60 years or thereabouts um endorsed that so it reflects a kind of contradiction. Let's broaden this out again. A contradiction that you know the the anti-imperial anti-imperial forces in in the West, even quite wealthy musicians such as um, such as Roger Waters, who capital in particular those who capitalized on this anti-imperialist stance, um, are basically uh, stooges of another empire, namely namely the Russian empire, in the name of stop the war, in the name of anti-nuclear activism, in the name of anti-imperialism. Um, and of course they, of course they don't hate Jews, they, they just hate, they hate Israel, the imperialist running dog of, of the great Satan. That mixes some metaphors a little bit, but whatever. And, um, and you find this quite, frequently among the global uh, it's absolutely commonplace among the global left and among global artists in particular where there's it's it's very very chic obviously to be anti anti-imperial and anti-western and oh you know all the terrible things that imperialism has done as if only there's only the british empire and the and the american empire no empire there were no empires ever before that as if and you know Roger Waters in particular and other and other artists on the left put tremendous pressure on musicians and others not to uh, not to normalize it's not quite the same normalization or anti-normalization rhetoric that um that you see coming directly out of the Palestinian movement and the BDS movement and on and now on American campuses quite frequently but it's it's cast a little bit more in the old in the old 80s um anti-apartheid anti-south africa kind of kind of rhetoric and is it successful it's uh there there have been some successes i'd have to think about various artists who've been scared off from playing in israel um and israelis always feel as though you know they're they're under siege which is correct to a certain extent on the other hand israel's a very small market um so that's why they they get a lot of kind of second tier uh western acts to play there um because you can't sell out 100,000 seat stadiums for an entire week you can maybe do it once um and and so on so uh and it's but uh, 
in the end, it's kind of predictable and sad and just, you might say, that uh, Waters has um, finally kind of imploded over this, and he'll still be a hero to lots of dumb Americans and Europeans who are who are attracted to this kind of superficial this superficial stance of the aging the aging rock star as if that's an attractive stance attractive position to be in at all i don't understand that but um <clears throat> but having been uh disowned or defenestrated by by your bandmate um and by your bandmate's wife uh, that's a that's a sad end so <laughs> Uh, well, good. Well, that, well, that's a good, I think, a good place, it's a good to, place to end. Good place to end. Well, uh, Alex, thank you as always. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot going on, and these are uh, these are challenging times to say the least. Uh, you know, to use another metaphor, uh, and obviously complicate uh, the space that we're all in. So, I thank you for unpacking these issues. Uh, again, um, we encourage Come all back of you next week. Yeah, come back next week for our uh, deep dive into the entire uh, Israeli battle over the judiciary in Israel at large. Uh, there's be more to discuss between now and then for sure. Uh, as always, I thank everybody for joining us this afternoon. Alex, I thank you as always uh, for taking the time to be with us. Uh, I hope everybody is doing well, and we will talk very soon. Have a great day. Take care.